Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm John, and this is our fourth week in our March Mead Madness. Today, we are continuing our interview with Jotham and the adventures of mead making. I had a lot of fun talking with him, and if you haven't heard part one, I highly suggest doing so. I also hope that you've been enjoying Jotham educating us on everything mead. So, without further ado, let's get back to the interview. So I know we hit upon this a little bit of how yeast affects fermentation. How does it also affect flavor? Oh boy, a few different ways. <laughs> let's go straight back to champagne yeast. D47 produces phenols and esters, uh, es- esters, pardon me, basically compounds and molecules that your nose is capable of detecting as side effects to the fermentation process. When different yeasts ferment at different temperatures, they kick off different byproducts. White wine yeast, specifically D47, produces a lot of fruitier floral aromas as part of part of the fermentation process if fermented at not too high a temperature, again, in that 65 to 70 degree range. Champagne yeast, on the other hand, precisely because it is kicking the crap out of basically anything that looks like food or competition, and by the way, this is true of all wine yeasts, they're absolute thugs compared to other types of yeast or other microbes. They will straight up murder anything. <laughs> it's wild. Uh, anybody with a Petri dish is invited to uh, load it up with their bacteria of choice, then chuck in some white wine yeast or uh, champagne yeast and see what happens the next day. <laughs> Hope you weren't counting on that other bacteria. <laughs> the, uh, the champagne yeast will kill a lot of the associated flavors. Personal theory of mine, it's why uh, people really are encouraged to drink champagne cold. It's so you don't notice all the white wine flavor that's been stripped out of a lot of it. Uh, that's a suspicion of mine, and I am quite certain that the French Ministry of Agriculture has a SWAT team <laughs> my location as I speak to gently correct my opinion on that. Um, a more dramatic example of this would be if we were to move into beer. Again, Hefeweizen is a very simple and approachable example of this. If you ferment at a lower temperature, it's not going to produce the uh, banana and clove, fennel and esters that really characterize the classic German Hefeweizen, Weinstefan Weizen or something like that. If you crank the temperature up, you may get a lot of banana or a lot of clove, depending on you know what you're fermenting with and details. But you're, you're going to lose out on 50% of what defines that beverage. And it's just not going to taste as nice. That rings a bell. Conversely, kind of the flavor of the month for the last couple of years, if that sentence makes a lick of sense, in terms of yeast, you may have heard of something called Kevik, K-E-V-I-C-K or something, or K-E-V-I-K. Basically, somebody went to a farm in Denmark and they found this yeast, basically, is how I understand it. It's literally pulled out of a barn, and it's a very literal farmhouse yeast. Now, that's not weird by itself. That's a very established category of beer, farmhouse beers. It's they're robust, they're simple, they're easy to make. Nothing wrong with them. Some of them can be screamingly alcoholic. Wow. Uh, but again, totally normal. What makes Kevic a little weird and a little interesting, there are a couple of strains of it floating around, is that it ferments at a silly high temperature. <laughs> it can ferment up into the 90 degree range. Some people even say up to 100. 
it's a little different. And normally I would say, and what kind of hot garbage did you make at a hundred degrees? Um, you know, because there is no way in hell that is going to be tasty. Yes. Well, it turns out that, um, I could say that, and then I would look like an idiot because it makes apparently really delicious stuff when you get that temperature up. It produces, at higher temperatures, it produces these incredible fruity uh, and floral aromas that really most beer yeasts just don't generate. I mean, that's kind of wild, right? (laughs) It's fascinating. So I lived in Southern California for almost five years, and that sounds like a uh, yeast that would work really well there. It, it absolutely would. Just quick side note on on the subject of why you would check, pick different yeasts over others. When you walk into your local homebrew emporium where you browse online, you're going to see two broad categories of yeast, dry yeast and liquid yeast. What's the difference? Well, almost nothing. Here's what it is. Remember I mentioned SO5 a moment ago? Mm-hmm. Ever have a uh, Sierra Nevada? Yes. That is, uh, I don't know if Fermentus has come right out and said this, but that's basically the yeast that Sierra Nevada isolated. And, um, you know, they, they were some of the real pioneers of West Coast IPAs. It's a very clean fermenting yeast. It gets a decent ABV, but it doesn't add a lot of yeast characteristics or flavors. It's called the Chico strain. And you can find it in <laughs> you know, Wild under their uh, Loud Brew brand. I think it's their BRY7 something. Uh, they have their version of the Chico strain. That California Ale Yeast 001 that I mentioned earlier from uh, White Labs. Yeah. It's the Chico strain. <laughs> um, in fact, basically every yeast manufacturer out there has some version of the Chico strain. So the difference between buying a little dehydrated pink packet of SO5 or red packet of SO5 from Fermentus and paying, you know, three or $4 more, depending on where you're sourcing it from, for a liquid uh, packet of, you know, yeast slurry from uh, White Labs uh, might not be entirely worth it for your purposes. Now, again, White Labs is joining up with the French Ministry of Agriculture on the whole SWAT program to loudly defend the virtues of their carefully lab-cultivated yeasts. But honestly, if you do a little shopping around and you uh, read into some of this stuff, you will find that a lot of the dry yeasts are the exact same strain as what you find in the liquid yeasts. So... I'm going to combine my last question with the, the next one. Yeah. Uh, I use D47 sure. for my first fermentation and my, my second batch I have as well. Yep. So in my second fermentation, I added Caracar oranges to really get, uh, nice. to give that orange flavor to it. Cause I know that it, it breaks down that orange flavor in the primary mm-hmm. and a lot of, I know there's a little bit of debate, like some people add everything in the primary, some people add spices and fruit to the secondary fermentation. You said yourself that you've added some stuff to the primary. Yep. What is the wildest thing you've added to your mead? This is where radio kind of and, and uh, audio podcasts kind of break down because I struggle to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> it's this Chinese berry. Uh, so our shop in uh, Cambridge is directly across a street from the Curio Spice Shop, which, boy, if you haven't Googled, hit up the Curio Spice Shop. It's amazing. 
it has stuff that I did not know existed. And I'm a pretty fair home cook <laughs> because I work in a home brew shop. And now I have a very specific mental illness. Every time I see something, I'm like, I could make more wine out of that. <laughs> I could turn that into mead. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's bad. Summer uh, farmer's markets are dangerous for both me and my wallet. Uh, so there is this berry label in there that's got a name that's sort of like Shisandra. S-C-H-I-S-A-N-D-R-A, something like that. Chinese five taste berry is how they marketed it. And the hook for me was that it's supposed to have both a salty and an umami flavor to it. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Two words you don't usually associate with berry, right? Yeah. Um, not at all. And it apparently makes a nice tea and they suggested adding it to desserts and things. So well, they sell them in one ounce packets or whatever it was. Uh, it's, sure. Why not? Take a shot at it. Took some home, made a tea out of it. It was delicious. It was such a nice tea. If you guys can track this down or order it from Curio, I strongly recommend you do it and try it out as a tea. It's it's genuinely nice. I mean, who knows what the correct dosing amount for Shisandra berries is in a mead, right? <laughs> like, that's not something I can Google and find out like this, you know, meaderies <laughs> version of the recipe. Right. Um so I just chucked some in and uh, had one of those moments of clarity about 10 seconds after I did it, but I had taken no steps to sterilize or sanitize those berries. Oh, no. <laughs> it turned out fine. They didn't ferment. There was nothing weird and wondrous on it. It got through secondary just fine. And now it's uh, sitting in some bottles waiting to age out. So we'll, we'll see how it all uh, turned out. But yeah, Barry, I can't actually pronounce the name of, I think would have to win the prize for weirdest thing I've put in an alcoholic beverage <laughs> or maybe buckwheat honey. But uh, yeah, probably the berries I can't pronounce the name of. So I know uh, mead is a lot like wine or champagne. You can, you know, it's dry to sweet. And that's always defined of like how much sugar is left in the mead. I'm new to mead making, like I said, and I have two batches going on right now. We talked about sterilizing what you can do, mm -hmm. um, and I might back-sweeten yeah. them. I might sterilize and back-sweeten. And I know you can also alternatively stop the fermentation early with like potassium sorbate, which will make it sweeter, but it's lower in alcohol volume. Which method do you prefer? Uh, not that frying is better than broiling. It's just some things are better fried and some things are better broiled. Same thing with back-sweetening or... Uh, stopping earlier to hit a certain sweetness level. What I would, uh, the products I am personally more comfortable using sterilizing, of which there are many. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear on that. There are many. My way is not necessarily the correct way on this for somebody else, but there are products, namely Camden tablets and Camden tablets are just tabletized versions of uh, potassium metabisulfate or sodium metabisulfate, both of which act as um, yeast reproduction inhibitors. They're referred to as sterilants. Strictly speaking, that's not correct, but it sort of functions that way. So I kind of understand why people do. Mm -hmm. Really what they're doing is they're inhibiting yeast reproduction. So the yeast dies off and then you don't get more yeast. Similar in effect, if different mechanically, then we have killed all the yeast with heat yeah, um, uh, or with a chemical bath of whatever. So I would, I would generally use one of those and then 
back sweeten if necessary. I generally would actually prefer to let something ferment dry unless I knew I was using a champagne yeast and I was very worried that I was going to lose flavor and aroma that I really wanted to get out of that primary fermentation mm -hmm. simply because it's much easier counterintuitively to reduce ABV, to reintroduce sweetness, to reintroduce flavor rather than kind of go the other direction where you've stopped early and now you have this very sweet thing and you're kind of going it's a little more sweet than i wanted uh should i add you know an acid blend should i you know lemon zest should i something you know how do i get this up uh boy it sure seemed like a great idea to have a six percent abv mead and now i regret many of my life choices you know what to do <laughs> whereas you know if you made a 14% a mead and you're going, this is nice, but the alcohol flavor is too raw, too strong. It's what can I do? Oh, I can add water. I can just, I can literally water this down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can mix it with something else. Uh, I can add a tea to it. I can add fruit to it. I can. So my preferred method is to uh, ferment dry and then back sweeten. But again, horses for courses, you know, you gotta, you gotta think about what your end product is going to be. And, um, Brew accordingly. It's better to have uh, too little and too much in this instance. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a um, well. I mean, I, I, this may be a little silly to kind of speak in a uh, very portentous tone towards microbial weak, but you know they are living organisms. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard that, but <laughs> this may be shocking news to you. But they are alive, and you know the the real name of the game is you're trying to get them to reproduce in a way that is beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the same principle as domestication. The yeast like it because we're making a hell of a lot more yeast than there might otherwise be. And it's good for us because we like the byproducts of their reproduction. Hell yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. It's, <laughs> it's a weird way to think about it, but yeah, you're just like, all right, buddies, you guys get it on. And when you're done, all this is mine. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be dead and i'm going to have all this um <laughs> yeah it's it's just let them i i just like the notion of providing them the best possible environment to grow and thrive in and when they have you know uh shuffled off this mortal coil uh you know this now it's my turn to play mm -hmm. now it's my turn to get in here and you know put whatever i want in <laughs> <laughs> So we've heard about some of your batches that went pretty good and some of them surprisingly, it sounds like. So my second batch, well, now it's technically my third batch because my second batch failed. I went right out the bat. I'm like, you know, it's the, almost the end of the year. I want to make a sizer while there's still cider. Nice. And I think you know what's coming. I started and my yeast didn't start and I'm like, what the hell's going on? I look uh, the ingredients that it says potassium sorbate and i didn't know what that was ah. and i looked online and that inhibits yeast growth and then it just started getting moldy and i'm like well toss five gallons out the window <laughs> yep oh god five gallons oh that's tough oh that's really tough oh man i wasn't deterred so i i started another sizer but i i made specifically for just to say apples and that that's it and yeah that was a that was a 
expensive little lesson, but yeah, it is um, not to excessively plug the shop, but we do regular cider buys where you can buy a five gallon bucket of unpasteurized <laughs> you know, undosed cider mm. uh, fresh from the orchards. I might, I might do that next time. So what about you? What is your worst experience making mead? Well, ooh, making mead probably yeah, I've, I've found my meads. The worst mead that I, actually successfully fermented wasn't bad it didn't taste awful or anything it just tasted rather watery and uh, i was shooting to make a mint mead Mm -hmm. i was up in uh vermont uh rural vermont over by manchester vermont a town called dorset which uh, uh if you've ever been out that way it is shockingly pretty i mean just absolutely gorgeous and extremely rural so i got some local honey and I went out back at my dad's place and picked some of the mint that was growing there. And like, what a great image, right? Like how pastoral, how connecting with the land. I'm going to use the local honey and the local mint and make this Dorset mint mead. And yeah, it worked, but I don't really taste the mint. And for some reason, the final product just came out much more watery than I usually associate with it is. I have had one mead that just plain failed to ferment, which is another uh, kind of mystery to me. I used, uh, speaking of clover honey, I uh, Costco sells an organic trusted source uh, honey, uh, clover honey, uh, which I'd read online. People had uh, had successful meats with, and there aren't a whole lot of really affordable choices for buying honey. So, you know, hey, I'm in Costco. It's pretty cheap for honey. And it's organic and from a real place. Why not? Just didn't ferment. Mm. No idea why. Still, still troubleshooting that one. Uh, but it uh, it just didn't turn out at all, which was uh, quite disappointing because it really was fairly cheap. Which does lead me to uh, actually a point, um, and maybe I should have answered this or said this when we were discussing types of honey at the top of the bill. Don't buy crap honey. <laughs> really, don't buy some yellow bear, golden bear, damn thing. Ideally, buy from a apiarist or you know honey maker where you can actually talk to the guy who either went and got it or is the direct employer of the guy who went and got it from the bees. There are exceptions to this. Dutch Gold is a phenomenal brand. We stock it in the shop. So yeah, buy good, buy local. And if you can, buy organic because, hey, why not? Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, but we got kind of sidetracked onto this, oh God, what is in my honey uh, thing. But where were we before? <laughs> uh, I think we covered it. It was like any batches that went awry and why. Oh yeah, those are the two most obvious ones. Uh, before we started recording, I mentioned uh, my first batch of cider, mm-hmm. which you know I made it, I followed all the recommended instructions. I was very proud of my thriftiness using this unfiltered, unpasteurized uh preservative free apple juice it was like field day brand or something and then i kind of popped the bung on it and it just smells like death i mean it's just i mean bad does not cover it rotten egg fight in the locker room just bad um so i immediately bin it before you know the health board shuts down our shop <laughs> you know toss it right down the toilet i started talking with a much more experienced uh, cider maker. Um, if anybody gets down to our store in Weymouth, the manager, Jim there, uh, when he gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and he's not super focused, he might knock out a five gallon batch of cider and not realize it till the next morning. <laughs> the guy's an absolute beast. 
there was just this kind of long pause on the phone when I'm describing this and trying to troubleshoot it. He's like, you know, it kicks off sulfur when it's fermenting, right? Like apples have a lot of sulfur and you ferment it and the sulfur dioxide is released when you are aerating it like you're supposed to, which means you should smell sulfur <laughs> and it'll age out. And, you know, now it's my turn to have a long, meaningful pause on the phone. It's like, I just threw out a gallon of perfectly good cider. Yeah, you threw out a gallon of perfectly good cider. <laughs> so just things like that happen. It's it's homebrew. If you take it too seriously, boy, you're just going to be in for a world of hurt. I mean, we're we're always trained if something smells bad, it's not good. But right. I guess in fermentation, it's not always the case. Yeah, it's, well, there are going to be, it's actually uh, usually a pretty reliable way to check to see if your beverage has been infected. If you see sort of, uh, kind of nodes and strings, white nodes and strings on top, that's usually an indication visually that it's been infected. But man, watching Krausen floating on the top of your thing, it looks like something's gone tragically wrong. And no, that's how it's supposed to work. So smelling it, not getting that kind of yeasty, bready smell uh, and getting something sour or something really unpleasant is usually a pretty good indication something's gone wrong. Where that breaks down is with anything that's got fruit in it. Grapes, uh, this happens with. And apples, as I mentioned earlier, are a complete bastard for this. Uh, pears, a lot of fruit has sulfur in it. And when they ferment out, that sulfur gets turned into sulfur dioxide and off gases. And actually, some yeasts produce more of that sulfur dioxide than others. So a sulfurous smell is not actually necessarily an indication that your batch has gone bad. Weird, but true. <laughs> Something I learned the hard way. Almost counterintuitive. It really is. Well, I mean, you want to know my absolute simplest cider recipe? And this is one literally every single person, even if there is not a single homebrew shop within 2,000 miles of you, and uh, you really can't be bothered ordering yeast. I have an incredibly simple homemade cider recipe. Buy a gallon of unpasteurized cider and put it in your fridge. This concludes the recipe. Uh, because that sucker is going to ferment. <laughs> I, I actually uh, read a book on uh, mead making and... Uh... The author said that he used the yeast on the apples to make a, a sizer out of it. You can actually make a nice apple cider that way. It's going to be uh, lower in ABV, which means it's going to be sweeter. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have a consistent batch to batch because it's whatever yeast is on the skin of the apple. But you legitimately can make hard cider by just getting some apple juice, putting it in your fridge, and just not touching it it's going to swell up you're going to probably want to poke a hole in the top at some point to stop any little accidents airlock wouldn't be a terrible idea but literally it's got the yeast in it you can just let it go it's going to ferment might not be the best ever but it's going to be tasty you can drink it yeah that's simple <laughs> so what do you think are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions about meat and home brewing in general it's hard that's literally the biggest misconception is that it's hard. It's not. It's incredibly simple. It's leaving a jar of apple juice in the fridge simple. It's uh, put honey in water simple. It's like anything else. It's like cooking. It's like drawing, painting, any other creative process, uh, any other craft. If you want reproducible results, and if you want to get the best results you can, you can always refine and improve your process. And learn how to new use, uh, learn how to use new ingredients, and learn how to use new techniques. 
Make sure your sanitization's on point. Try out different yeasts, see what you like. Try out different honeys, see what you like. Adding things, removing things, whatever. But it's not hard. It's really not. Fundamentally, if you don't care what the ABV is, <laughs> if you're not particularly concerned about recreating Queen Elizabeth's authentic mead recipe from 16 whatever, which is a real thing and you can find it, um, it's a terrible recipe they put online. I have seen it, and uh, in the finest traditions of the internet, it was copied to like eight other places with all the original errors included, but it is out there. You could reproduce Queen Elizabeth's mead recipe if you wanted, or not, or you could just do whatever. It's really not hard, and that to me is the joy of homebrewing. You can do it as simply as you like, or you can have a temperature-controlled, you know, uh, fermentation, you know, like a reach in refrigerator you now have a space heater in so you can control the heat and you remove it and you have a little uh, ink bird thermometer uh, and thermostat device so you can chill it at exactly the right temperature for your fermentation process taking regular gravity readings or if you want to be really bougie and up to date chuck in a bluetooth readable hydrometer and just you don't even have to open it up and risk contamination or oxidization you can just be uh, there on your phone seeing exactly what the gravity is then, you know, transfer it from your stainless steel uh, fermentation bucket by tube directly into your stainless steel secondary or your glass secondary. Again, never touching oxygen at any point in this because you have spent a jillion dollars setting up this thing. You can do all that. And boy, would I love to sell you that stuff because we have all that. Well, not the refrigerator <laughs> part, but all the stuff to make the refrigerator. But you don't have to. You don't. You just need some, you know, apple juice in a refrigerator. Or some honey and water. Don't let some graybeard on the internet tell you that you're a monster because you're, uh, you know, not using the right kind of stick to properly recreate the type of mead they made in who knows where in Scandinavia and year dot. He's wrong. You're fine. <laughs> Do it your way. It's going to be okay. End of the day, you'll have alcohol. <laughs> you'll have mead. So that, that would be my message. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> well, thank you for coming today, Jotham. It's been a pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we leave? Uh, support your local homebrew shop. And, you know, hey, if you're in the Massachusetts or New York area, support our, support our local brew shop, Modern Homebrew Emporium. But really check out your local uh, homebrew supplier. It's a tough time for everybody. And this is actually can be a fairly cheap hobby. So the Whoever it is, wherever you go to, your local homebrew uh, store will be very happy to hold your hand and walk you through making any kind of fermented beverage your heart desires. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has. Well, my microbe friends, I hope you enjoyed our time with Jotham. I certainly learned a lot and plan on using what I learned on future batches. As always, thank you so much for listening. And I hope this podcast brings you some knowledge and an interest in brewing your own beverages. If you're picking up this hobby, or you've been fermenting for a while, we'd love to hear from you. You can share by emailing us at microbigales at gmail.com, or send us a message on Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook at microbigales. If you did enjoy today's show, please consider following us or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit our website at microbigales.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we hope you keep your microbes happy and healthy. 
Bye.